Good morning, everyone. How's the volume in the back? Good. Is everybody attending okay? Okay, very good. Well, welcome this morning uh, to another installment of Church History One. And our topic for today is the lapsus controversy, um, which, and I've entitled this as 235 AD to 311 AD. So you get some nice specific years and you'll You'll hear why those particular years um, coming up very shortly. So, lapsus controversy. Any idea um, what that's about? Lapsing, relapsing, anything like that? Yep, so people who fall, and then um, questions about people coming back from falling. And we'll talk about what particular kind of fall um, we've got going on here in just a minute. So first, I'd like to give you some more background on the political history of Rome, because this is going to figure uh, very strongly into our topic for today. So Rome in the third century, stability, crisis, and recovery. That's a big um, topic that you'll, you'll get for a couple of lectures or so in an undergraduate survey on Roman history. So Roman Empire, um, as many of you may know, falls, at least in the West, in the late fifth century, but it actually almost all fell apart in the third century, quite a bit earlier, and um, narrowly recovered and was rebuilt on slightly different lines. So to get a sense of what the third century was like, if you take the history of Roman emperors from Augustus, who is officially installed, installed as emperor in 27 BC, which is really the year that people use um, in his career to decide when he becomes emperor um, and has all of the full powers of an emperor, to the death of a man named Alexander Severus in 235 AD. Um, Severus was the last member of a coherent dynasty called the, the Dynasty of the Severi. And uh, between those two emperors, 250 years, there are 30 emperors. So an average tenure for an emperor of a little over eight years, actually pretty similar to our current, um, our current political system, and making for relative stability. And in fact, when you count in a couple of short rough patches, there's a, a year of civil war in the first century where there were four emperors in one year. And then during the Severan dynasty, there were a couple of uh, a, a couple stretches where emperors were going through pretty fast. So actually, for most of the time, most of that period in 250 years, uh, emperors were ruling quite a bit longer. And it was not unusual for an emperor to be in office for 20 years. led to quite a bit of stability to the um, what's been called the Pax Romana, the, the Peace of Rome, where, um, which I was mentioning in um, my introductory session here, was um, a time when you could travel um, unmolested from one area, one side of the Mediterranean to the other, and um, there was general political stability. Towns at the inside of the Mediterranean didn't have walls. This is an amazing thing um, in the pre-modern world. They tore down their walls because they weren't necessary. But then, um, looking at the period that follows, follows this immediately, um, will be the period of our discussion, from 235 AD, um, so the death of Alexander Severus, to the accession of a man named Diocletian in 284 AD, just a 50-year period, there are another 30 emperors. So what happens is really the, the office of emperor in the Roman Empire becomes almost um, like a revolving door. People are out in, under, in and out in under two years. Um, most of them are killed violently um, in various kinds of coups. Most of these emperors are Roman generals who find themselves with a large army and decide that they're going to be emperor and have their troops proclaim, as, proclaim them as emperor and march on Rome. And this happens just over and over again. Um, and so 
third century looks very different from the first and second centuries of uh, Roman history. So why did some of this why did some of this happen? Um, Augustus, going back to the guy who set up the system that we're talking about, was brilliant, and he set up a system that lasted for hundreds of years after his death. But the thing is that he could only plan for conditions that were somewhat similar to the ones that obtained in his lifetime, which makes sense. So things have changed by the third century from what Augustus uh, knew about. So there was a resurgent Persian Empire. Um, so Rome's big existential enemy is, has, was always to the east. Um, to, so there was a, it's called a Parthian dynasty of the Persian Empire that Rome um, knew very well and constantly fought back and forth battles with, but no, n neither empire really ever thought that they would be able to take over the other empire. Um, at least it took on, only on rare occasions. There were sort of border skirmishes between the two of them. Except in the third century, Persia was uh, taken over by a radically new and aggressive dynasty called the Sasanians. So now this becomes known as the Sasanian Empire, and they are stretching Rome's resources on their eastern border. On the northern border, increased numbers of Germanic tribesmen were forming larger and larger alliances. This seems to have to do, in fact, in part, with the, the very success of Rome. So Roman's success, Roman, um, the strength of the Roman economy is bringing food and goods north and trading them north across its borders and actually helping to increase the population of the Germanic tribesmen that are living there. And those people are seeing, well, we've got some of the good things that Rome has. Why not go in and take all of them now that there are more of us? So you have an increased number of invasions at the same time that you have bigger problems on the eastern border, you have bigger problems on the northern border. There was a plague in the second century, right at the height of Roman power, that decimated Roman population and slowed the economy. So at the same time that pressures are building up on the outside, the uh, wherewithal to meet those pressures is being challenged from the inside. And uh, in overall, this leads to an overstressed system where emperors are being killed in battle, either on one, one, of, one of those two uh, fronts or um, by members of their own army who are getting ambitious, don't like the way things are being run, and um, some ambitious general comes and assassinates his own emperor and becomes uh, emperor in his place. So this is what's going on politically and militarily in Rome. Um, let's still look at Roman religion during this same period, because as you, you'll start to notice a pattern that while Christianity is on the rise, um, Roman stability is on the decline, and this makes for a, a bad combination in the Roman psyche. So Roman religion, people, many people were taking philosophical ideas more seriously um, than sacrificial cults and the old gods. So some of these ideas that Junius has been talking about um, in alternating weeks are gaining more and more popularity in this period. Um, there's been a process of urbanization during the successful centuries of the Roman Empire, so people are moving to large cities. This tends to break them away from their local roots, and the local roots, the local gods, are the strength and the backbone of um, Roman civic religion. So people leave their small town and move to Rome or move to Carthage or move to Alexandria, and they tend to leave their old gods behind, and they also, which means they tend to leave the, the money, the donations, the sacrifices that they provided for those old gods, also leave those behind. Um, and of course, um, so many new gods are, being com are, are coming in, many of them from the Persian Empire again, from the further east. Um, there are new, um, what, are, what are called mystery cults, um, 
uh, religious groups where people have to be initiated, and these are uh, further dividing um, the resources of um, traditional Roman religion. And of course, one of these, the biggest, the single biggest um, new introduction of uh, into the religious picture in Rome was Christians. And of course, every sincere Christian convert is one less participant in Roman civic religion. <coughs> So what we have is the first time in the third century, the rising Christian movement began to challenge Roman identity. So if you remember back to the Pliny Trajan correspondence in the early second century, Pliny says, you know, I've heard of these Christians before and I know that they get tried and I'm not exactly sure what's going on. Um, Trajan, can you please give me some pointers and, and how this should work? There's no fear um, and there's no defensive posture on the part of Pliny. He knows that he's in charge. He's knows he knows that he's with the majority. He sees a little bit that, you know, so the, the, um, the, the, there seems to be a little bit less of um, devotion to the old gods, and he remarks on that, but he's, he's confident that that's just a historical blip and will change in the near future. Um, Roman opponents of Christianity in the, by the third century had started to take on some defensive postures. They started to say, okay, here's how we need to explain our own religion to our own people and why it's valuable as a coherent system over against Christianity. Um, they, they, it takes on a very different tone. Um, and one of the other manifestations besides people just flinging words where they first they defend um, the, the traditional pagan religion and then they also, of course, continue to attack um, Christians on many of the same lines that we talked about a few weeks ago um, on attacking Christian doctrine. They, there becomes a new, new type of persecution, or at least persecution on a new level, persecution coming directly from the emperor and intended to be, world, uh, and intended to be worldwide, intended to be empire-wide. And the first major outbreak of this is under an emperor called Decius. Um, so that will be on the, on the um, fourth section of the first page of your handout, picking up here under number two. So the Emperor Decius instigated the first empire-wide persecution of Christians. He instigated this in 249, in um, the middle of the third century, right, right smack in the middle of this period of political instability that I've been talking about. So this is the, this is the time period where Rome should be celebrating its um, millennial anniversary. It's, you know, Rome, from its mythological foundations, celebrated their 1,000th anniversary in 247. Not really a great time to be celebrating, looking back on the thousand years of glory. They were, they were in a rough way, um, and they're being reminded of it by the fact that all these Christians are running around believing something totally contrary to the the mythological foundations of Rome. And so he ushers in a, an empire-wide persecution in 249, but this doesn't last very long because remember, the um, Roman, the office of Roman Emperor is like a revolving door right now, and he's killed, um, actually, on the northern frontier fighting against um, invaders in 251. And what this ushers in is something called the Long Peace. So uh, just as things were starting to get a little bit hairy for Christians, things started to get a little bit too difficult for the Romans, and they kind of forgot about religious unity in the face of fighting for military survival. And so over the next few decades after that initial major new kind of persecution, there is sort of a false peace. Many Christians thought that they were finally going to be able to kind of gradually get along within the Roman Empire, 
Um, you had a generation of young people that grew up that didn't know about persecution, at least in a, a systematic form. Um, but as we'll see um, shortly uh, at the end of this period, just before um, persecutions end completely in Roman history, there comes the worst of the persecutions. Well, let's pause here for just a second and look at what, um, what this new kind of uh, persecution looked like. If you remember um, under Pliny, uh, the, the questions about whether or not a person is a Christian were something that happened face to face. Somebody had to be accused and then brought before the magistrate and then questioned and then either sacrificed or didn't sacrifice. Um, in the, to make this a, a sort of more bureaucratically oriented um, kind of system, be, to be more systematic about it, to, to deal with more people, what they instituted was the concept of a certificate of sacrifice. So um, a person could be called upon um, to, at random really, to produce this certificate, uh, a piece of paper that would say, yes, um, I am a true Roman citizen and believer in the true um, Roman pantheon, and I've um, officially, with witnesses, had my sacrifices recorded. So now I don't have to do this in front of the governor if I happen to be called forward or accused. I can just produce my piece of paper. Um, and so people would regularly go out and um, get these certificates of sacrifice. And I've actually provided a copy of one for you. If you want to take a moment to look at that, this will be on the second page of your handout under number nine there, and conveniently labeled Certificate of Sacrifice. Do I have a volunteer who would like to read this? It's very short, um, but full of really interesting information, I think. So not, not the italicized um, portions that introduce the text, but starting with to the commissioners of sacrifice. Jake? To the commissioners of sacrifice in the village of Alexander's Island, from Aurelius Diogenes, the son of Satibus, of the village of Alexander's Island, aged 72 years, scar on his right eyebrow. I have always sacrificed regularly to the gods, and now in your presence, in accordance with the edict, I have done sacrifice, and poured the drink offering, and tasted of the sacrifices, and I request you certify the same. Farewell. Handed in by me, Aurelius Diogenes. I certify that I saw him sacrificing dot dot dot. Done in the first year of the emperor, Caesar Gaius, Messius, Quintus, Trajanus, Decius, Pius, Felix, Augustus, the second of the month, Epic. Thank you. Well done. So what do you see in the certificate of sacrifice? Um, what are some of the details that jump out at you guys? Yeah, basically. Physical description. So there are some attempts at combating fraud with these. Um, you want to, to have some way of verifying that the person showing you the document is the person named in it. It's double signed. Um, it's not signed by the emperor, although it's done. That's um, you. You would date um, a document by the year of the emperor under whom 
it was created. So what is the I certify that I saw him sacrifice? Uh, that would be, yeah, that would be a witness who would be, who would be signed. And uh, amidst all that, you know, that, that dozen names of the emperor right there, emperors, <coughs> excuse me, tended to stack their names up, um, especially since they were, they were adopted by the emperor before them. So Caesar is in there, Gaius, Messius Quintus, Trianus um, was a major second century emperor. Um, and we see there, right, almost in the middle, Decius. So that would be the um, emperor that I mentioned just a little bit, little bit earlier, um, who ruled from 249 to 250. And so this uh, persecution, uh, this certificate was probably created um, in 249 or 250. So that gives you a little bit of a window um, into what the, these documents actually look like. Now, what can you imagine would be the temptation um, with documents like this that could get a person out of a capital offense? As we noticed from, this, uh, from the discussion of it being kind of a picture ID. Forgery. Yeah, it's a forged one. Um, seems like a, an easy way out of things, right? So we'll be discussing what happens um, when people did forge these, and many people did, um, and what kind of theological and pastoral problems that caused once persecution would end. So to go back and complete the historical story, um, following the long peace, uh, Rome had to find a way out of this mess of emperors coming and going. Um, every year and a half or so. <coughs> and the person who got them out of it was a Praetorian prefect, so sort of captain of the guard named Diocles, who in 284 murdered his emperor in his tent, um, came out in front of the tent and says, our emperor has passed on and he has named me as his heir. And he convinced people that this was the case, or at least enough of the army, and he took over rule of the empire in 284. Um, Diocletian was another one of those great world leaders, at least in terms of his, um, his politics and his military skills. So he defeated invading forces on both northern and eastern fronts, so reestablished the borders of the Roman Empire um, and enforced favorable peace treaties with many of its enemies. He reformed taxation and administration um, you can see they provided a map of the Roman Empire under Diocles on the second page. Um, unless you're familiar with previous maps of the Roman Empire, you won't quite notice, but one of the things that he did was uh, double the number of provinces in Rome, so created smaller administrative units and put more administrators in them. And so he um, Increased the size of the bureaucracy by, um, you know, uh, three or fourfold at least. Um, he created a new system of coinage and taxation. <coughs> and he did, and he um, even more importantly in politics, he realized that one of the problems with such a big empire and fighting on multiple fronts is the emperor can only be in one place at once. And he w figured out a way for emperors to be in more, place than, more places than, uh, than one at once by creating a college of emperors, actually four emperors with a very strict hierarchy among them, 
a very strict system of succession and adoption of heirs, um, and put these four emperors at strategic corners of the empire so that they would be able to, with full military authority, respond to crises within a couple of weeks of when they happen instead of several months. But he did all of this under the um, sort of the a system of propaganda which hailed him, even though this is very common in history, the most radical reformers often paint themselves as um, extreme conservatives and say that we're, I'm taking you back to the roots, to the way things used to be, to the way things should be. And one of the ways that he did that was by saying, I, everything that I'm doing is under the protection of the traditional Roman gods. I've completely changed government and the economy and the military, but I'm doing it to, to get us back to the way things used to be. So he had an elaborate justification for a system of four emperors, because as you can imagine, this would be something that would be a little strange um, for people to swallow. But um, what he did is you know, he, he put them under the, the Jovian dynasty and the Herculean dynasty in the east and the west. Um, he reinstituted the cult of the emperor and sacrifices to the emperor, new, issued new coins. This, this new kind of coin also had emblems of the emperors and the gods on them together, um, working together toward Roman peace. So as you can imagine, there's not much room in Diocletian's system for people who aren't part of that system. And so later on in um, Diocletian's reign, in the year 301, um, after persecuting other minority sects, um, he launched the single largest and most severe persecution of Christians in Christian history, beginning in 301 and lasting with some minor interruptions and in more severe in certain parts of the empire than in others, lasting for 10 years to 311. So many Christians were martyred at this time period, um, at least in the thousands, possibly as high as the tens of thousands, but numbers are, for, for this time period in history, pretty much impossible to get a hold of. Um, Eusebius, the first church historian, is our major source for what's going on in this period. Um, many Christians refused to be martyred, however, at the same time that many Christians were being martyred. And they did this in a number of ways. Uh, so, you can give in, you sacrifice. You get out of it. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, you can give up the scriptures. You can, so you're a bishop in your church, and the authorities come by and say, we want all of your church books. And they say, okay. Some of them do. Some of them try and pull a fast one. They give up heretical books. So, here, you can have the Gospel of Philip. Why don't you burn that for us? That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, some people even went so far to give them medical treatises. The, the police were not necessarily literate. And even if they were literate, they maybe uh, might have been sympathetic toward the Christians and just wanted to have something to show their boss and say, yeah, they give us the scriptures. So, yeah, Galen's medical treatises. Why not? Uh, some uh, some Christians thought this was also a bit disingenuous, to say the least, um, after the fact, and so there were some problems um, based on that kind of uh, deception, but that was one way to get out of things. Um, a Christian could buy a certificate of sacrifice, even without giving a sacrifice. So as we talked to you before about the, the possibility of forgery here with these certificates, um, you could find a sympathetic magistrate who says, I don't really feel like killing people over this stuff, let them believe what they want to believe. He, give me, you know, um, a few extra bucks and I'll, I'll sign off and give him a certificate that he can, that he can show later. So the Christian could say, well, I didn't really sacrifice. 
uh, I just you know, got the certificate to say that I, I thought I was being pretty intelligent, actually. Um, and of course, Christians could simply leave. Um, if they were wealthy enough, had the wherewithal, they could leave town, um, go out in the country somewhere where you know, the government doesn't have the manpower to send people out to track everybody down, and then just kind of wait it out. Because as we saw, this lasted, even though it's the longest single persecution, it lasted only 10 years. Um, and in many places, quite a bit less than that. So there were, there were ways of getting out. Now, what, can you, what would you think would happen once this is all over? When you have large numbers of Christians who did stay around, who refused to sacrifice or to deceive anyone about their sacrificing, and went through horrible tortures or lost loved ones, and now people come back down out of the hills or, you know, tear up their certificates of sacrifice or things like that. Do you think there might be a little tension in within the community itself at this point? What's, just as a show of hands, what's, what's um, percentage in this group would, your first impulse would be toward um, unity and forgiveness and thank goodness it's all over, can we all just get back to, together and to be in a group um, happily? Yeah? Okay. So we've got, we've got a few hands. Good. People are brave. And what people, what tends to be in the group would be to say, this is such, so, such a heinous crime, I can't imagine ever being in communion with these people again. Um, I mean, my entire family was killed. I was tortured. I barely, I only escaped prison because you know, the emperor doing this died before I did. Um, how, what about, what about the memory of the people that, who, who died for this? Um, and, and now you're going to let these people who, you know, pulled some trick or used their money to get off um, when my family didn't have enough money and, and wouldn't do it anyway? Yeah. People showing, few, few, few brave hands showing a little bit of reluctance there. So these, are, these two positions came to be known as the rigorist and the laxist positions. Um, um, and divisions within this were often very strongest in North Africa. Uh, some of those persecutions in North Africa were very severe, and there's also a, just a, a, a tradition of taking a hard line of theology in North Africa. And after each of these major persecutions, after one in the mid-third century, um, there was a schism called the Novationist Schism, named after one of the major participants in it. We'll read a little bit more about him in just a minute. And then after the Great Persecution, there was another schism called the Donatist Schism. Same idea. Um, what's, what would happen is people would set up separate groups of churches and say, um, and this would be people on the, the rigorist camp saying, those people who, who sacrificed, those people who gave in, um, some of them, in the most extreme, would say it didn't matter if you bought a certificate of sacrifice or if you actually gave a sacrifice. Um, there's no distinction between them. If you, if those people who gave in are no longer a part of our communion. And they would elect their own bishops and their own rival churches and have churches of the pure alongside the, the Catholic churches. <coughs> and this is the root of the controversy that we're talking about. The lapsus controversy is the controversy in the aftermath of a great persecution. What do you do about reconciliation and forgiveness and maintaining the integrity of a, um, 
a church body that has been wounded and people in it have shown that there are things in life that are more important to them than the gospel. So one of the voices in history that uh, talks to us about exactly this issue is a man named Cyprian of Carthage. Carthage is in modern-day Tunisia, North Africa, so right in the middle of this uh, major major schism, and he was um, bishop in the 250s, so he is dealing with the first controversy, the Novation Schism. And this letter right here, of which I've given you some sections, illustrates his uh, theology, his pastoral theology of what to do both with people who have lapsed and with people who um, are completely unaccepting of the people who have lapsed um, and who have actually gone on to um, build their own churches based on this controversy. So could I have a volunteer to read the first section, 13.1? This details his opinion of what, what should be done with the last. Hillary. And he's one of the lapses camp. So he's saying uh, that their initial thought is that they only um, allow those who have lapsed back into the church really on their deathbeds, um, that they need to be on their way out to finally be able to be received back into the church. Um, he opens up to the possibility that um, God and his loving kindness might be kinder and grant these people healing and allow them to continue on in their lives for a longer period um, while being reconciled to the church. But um, Cyprian was pretty, within the lack of camp, Cyprian was pretty much on the hard, hard line side of things, um, allowing only um, re readmission um, into the church body uh, in extremis um, and near death. But he did allow it. And as we'll see, uh, the person against whom he's writing here, Novation, um, was someone who wouldn't allow even for that. Um, but you can see from this that the, you know, the, the rhetoric of not allowing ourselves to set about choking or suffocating them, the, the emotions were running very, very high. Um, people, this was not something that people could take an academic, detached <coughs> view of. Uh, everybody in the church had gone through this together and seen the different ways of that, that it could come out. Uh, do we have a volunteer for section 13.2? This one, uh, okay. Well, yeah, Jake. I can ask a question about that. What's the, what's the rationale for letting them back in but only on their deathbed? 
Uh, the idea is that we don't want us to deal with them during their life, but who do we spare last communion from them or something? That they probably won't be sincere until they've come to the point again where it's a life or death situation. Isn't it irony too? Like, it's just ironic because he's saying that only the, the people on, at their death are given grace or something. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like there's a bit of I think so. Um, early Christians, and this is a reflection of a larger trend, had very um, mixed views about how forgiveness works after baptism. Um, some of them tended to say that there was no remission of sins after baptism. Baptism was the final remission of sins, and so they encouraged people to um, get baptized for the first time on their deathbeds, even after living an entire life within the Christian church. Then later on people would say, no, only one sin or sin one time can be forgiven after baptism. The, the rationale for that is a little bit strange. Um, and sometimes they would uh, distinguish between different kinds of sin. So what we would call, you know, to use a more modern Catholic term, like venial sins can be forgiven, but mortal sins like murder and adultery or apostasy, in this case, turning away from the church, um, those things could not be forgiven after the fact. And there's a lot, um, there's a lot of back and forth on this, which I think uh, Cyprian is keying into Tolliver. Yeah, I'm just wondering, uh, <coughs> for those who held that view, uh, was it a biblical warranty here? Because I know that the Uh, they would tend to think of that as being blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, that you are in part of the Holy Spirit um, in your baptism, and anything that you do against Christ and God following that, that time period um, is on a different category from anything before. Yes? A strong tendency to do what? A strong tendency to do what? Yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. Even to the point where some people <coughs> formed new churches and said, now anyone who's lapsed is completely cut out of our church. Mm -hmm. Yep. <coughs> It is, and that's um, a, ma <coughs> a major scripture that the um, that the laxist camp would bring out and say, even the chief of the apostles um, denied Christ when it came down to the wire, and so we need to be able to show the same kind of forgiveness. So those would be the two the two biblical poles that you're working from, and caught up within it is an incredibly high current of emotional trauma um, and real fear because. At, at this point, we know as historians that in 311, persecution was done, um, at least within Rome. I mean, throughout the Christian church, it hasn't ended to this day. But um, they didn't know that. They thought, you know, this next emperor is okay with us, but the person after him it could, um, it could go the other direction again. <laughs> so let's see how Cyprian dealt with... Um, different ways that people um, approach sacrifices. Uh, we have a volunteer for reading the next section, 13.2.
What is more, my dearly beloved brother, you should not judge as some do, that those who obtain certificates are to be put on the par with those who offer sacrifice. Why, even amongst those who actually sacrifice, there is often to be discerned a great diversity in circumstances and conditions. For example, we should not put on a par a man who without hesitation springs forward of his own free will to perform the accursed sacrifice, and another who, after putting up a long struggle and resistance, eventually approached that deadly task only under compulsion. Equally different is the man who thrust forward his entire family as well as himself, and another who alone confronted the task on behalf of everyone else, thereby protecting his wife, his children, and his entire household at the cost of endangering himself. Finally, the man who forces his tenants and friends to perpetuate that criminal action is not to be equated with the man who spares his tenants and farmers, who welcomes under the shelter of his own roof many brethren who are refugees in flight on their way to exile, one who can present and offer before the Lord many souls alive and saved today, and intercede for pardon on behalf of his one wounded soul. So, how do we see Cyprian acting now? As this this breakdown of things seem to be <coughs> reasonable and pastorally motivated, or more hardline. It's hard to say, really. Yeah. I mean, there there is some graciousness here. That well, there are some who participated who aren't as bad off as mm-hmm. others, and yet we have we see this kind of really detailed theology of works righteousness coming in that. You know, if you do this, it's bad, but it's not as bad as if you go and do this. And it's, so it's, you see a man who's trying to be gracious within the confines of a, a serious error, I think. Okay, yeah. Well, it seems like um, they're trying to decide this with the assumption that who's in the church and who's out of the church, at least in the apartment, is really important. Like, this isn't just who we're going to allow to come and have lunch with us. Um, the you're, you're right to point that out, and people had a very heightened sense of um, their community as reflecting on themselves, because as you can see, um, this membership in that community now has life and death consequences. And so if you have people in your church who are willing to give up a bunch of names and start pointing out this family and this family and that family in order to save their own, (laughs) it matters quite a bit who you count as part of your community. And if you feel like the names of people that you know and loved who refused all sacrifice and were, were martyred in this last persecution, you feel like their names are being dragged through the mud by people who didn't make the same sacrifice and yet want to call themselves Christians on the same level and want to um, share in the same earthly community and the same heavenly rewards. Um, you can see how people who are very sensitive about ideas of membership. Yeah, back. 
If you were to spend your entire life and being excommunicated, cut off from communion, cut off from grace, the idea was that, yeah, um, if you, then you, you would die in a state of, um, in a state without grace and not be a part of community. So that, that was also um, a very important distinction going on. Yeah. Was there a conception um, that maybe persecution was God's plan Yeah, we see that in the rigorous position, um, position. So, and actually, exactly that biblical metaphor will be coming up later on in this letter, um, with um, Cyprian questioning who, uh, or reminding his audience of exactly who is doing the sifting, um, and how we how we discover that. Yes. Was this? I don't know if this perspective system that we've been talking about. Could it be that he was trying to be gracious? I think there's a little bit of both, yeah. Um, that he, he's he's in a tough pastoral position because he has to um, recognize the feelings of the people who haven't lapsed and fulfill his pastoral duty toward those who have lapsed and are truly repentant. And to figure out the difference between people who are truly repentant and people who just will run again the slightest boot. Um, there, there's a real concern about that also. Um, are you know are we um, are we bringing people in who who simply aren't sincere? That's one of the one of the big complaints about this long piece, this this nearly half century of no persecution, is that all of a sudden people are coming into the church in droves um, for what seems after the test to have been less than pure motives. Um, the, tr- the church is starting to become respectable and wealthy. Um, and people thought, oh, I want to be a part of that. But when push comes to shove, they're out. Um, and the, the, the church as a whole is, trying to, is, is faced with a very severe identity crisis that we see being worked out here um, about how, what, what membership means um, and what what, how you test the motivation of people who are a part of your community in situations of life and death. So let's take a look at... Um, at the, the consequences of taking the really hard line. Um, somebody could read the next section, 24.1 and 24.2. It talks about novation and what's uh, going on with him. Colleen, would you mind reading? Sure. Uh, yes, please. Thank you. 
And yet, despite this arrangement established by God, despite this unity in the Catholic Church, which is universally linked and locked together, he is now attempting to set up a man-made church, and he is setting up numerous cities, upstart apostles of his own, in order to lay down brand new foundations for an establishment of his own devices. And whereas in every one of the provinces in each of the cities there have been long since appointed bishops who are venerable in age, sound in grace, accepted in tribulation, and prescribed in persecution, he even has the effrontery to point over and above them a new set of spurious bishops. Thank you. Jake, raising eyebrows. Sort of like when a political campaign gets off of issues and gets on to the <coughs> digging up things about people's past. I mean, not that it's maybe not appropriate here, but. Do you feel, do you feel like this is off topic um, for Cyprian? Or what, what's the import of Novation setting up a rival church? Novation has actually declared himself Pope um, in Rome. Um, over against uh, the uh, another bishop of Rome is setting up rival bishoprics throughout uh, the empire. I don't like how he just he keeps saying we shouldn't even know about it. Like we shouldn't educate ourselves about it. We should just like cover our eyes up or bury our head in the sand. I don't, I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, that seems like maybe a less than fully um, like productive way. That guy. Yeah. Correct. Which is why he set up um, a. He was so so hardline about that that said not only are the people who are lapsed a problem, the people who didn't lapse and will accept the lapse are a problem. And so we need to to create a church of the pure people who not only didn't lapse and their pedigree is pure, but who will have no um, compromise with um, anyone who did lapse or anyone who thinks that there should be a compromise. Yeah, Jake. If I might have earlier comment actually about Muslim, it's not totally fair. I mean, mm -hmm. he's not trying to, I guess, totally derail it from ideas or things mm -hmm. that people are talking about. He's saying if this person would do this to the church, mm -hmm. that's like, that person must have flawed theology because this isn't the theology that we have as a church. Right. He doesn't even need to talk about what Novation says about the last people. He's saying look at the, the image he's doing to the unity of the apostolic church and how can we, that in and of itself is not. Yeah, so at this point, you, you, we've gone a, another level beyond the question of the lapse, and we've gone to a question of church unity. And the question of the lapse is becoming a, a wedge that is, that is being driven in uh, between different, sex, different sections of the church and destroying church unity. And so for Cyprian, that becomes far worse than what you, whatever it is you do about um, dealing with people who are lapsed, is if you make such a radical decision that you are going to divide the church over it, you yourself, even if you, you know, were perfectly upstanding and were tortured for your faith and um, and stayed true, you're the sin that you're committing is worse than that of somebody who gave in and sacrificed <laughs> because you were deliberately fracturing the church. What's that? Right, and that's going to become the the um, the orthodox position. Um, <laughs> Augustine will um, have sort of the definitive word after in the Donatist schism, which is sort of the um, this controversy take two um, in going on in the fourth century and on into his time. 
because um, that schism will last for hundreds of years. And Augustine will work out the definitive theology of saying that it's um, that grace is total and the uni unity of the church is always going to include people who um, are sinful and people who need to repent and maybe even need to repent more fully um, and that we as humans can't make those decisions. So why don't we take a look at what uh, Novation has to say, excuse me, what Cyprian has to say about that um, a little bit before Augustine, this last section, 25.1 and 25.2. Look at the pushed-up arrogance of it all, the total disregard for meekness and humility, the supreme display of personal pride, that a man should dare to do or even imagine himself able to do what the Lord did, did not allow even the apostles to do, that he should think he was able to divide the church from the weak, or as if it was to him that had been granted power to wield the winnowing fan and to cleanse the threshing floor, that he should set about separating the chaff from the grain. Despite the fact that the apostle says, that in a great household there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also vessels of wood and of clay. He actually thinks he can pick out the vessels that are of gold and of silver, or that he can despise and them and cast away the vessels that are of wood and of clay. Whereas the vessels of wood are to be burnt in the flames of the divine fire only in the day of the Lord, and the vessels of clay are to be snatched only by the one to whom he has been entrusted to ride on him. Does anyone remember to whom has been entrusted the rod of iron? <laughs> Christ. God. So, um, this is Cyprian's um, answer to, to the claims of somebody like Novation, that no, um, the church is always going to be mixed, and it's okay that it's going to be mixed, because we've been told that that's the way it is, and it's going to be an evil thing for us to take upon <coughs> ourselves that kind of judgment. This isn't to say that there should be no church discipline. Um, as we've seen earlier, you know, he's got his own um, somewhat strange ideas about how the lap should be dealt with, um, and he recognizes that they should be dealt with. But to make that kind of final judgment that Novation is making, he said, um, is wrong. And so Cyprian on that point is making the point that Christians will continue to affirm in church history is that we can't um, exclude repentant people, whether you know, whether we think that they're maybe not sincere enough, maybe they're not so strong enough. Um, we can't say that they committed a sin that's so heinous that we can't forgive it if God is opening up the possibility of forgiving all things. And um, God is the one who takes upon himself the, the final judgment. So are there any, any last questions on the lapsus controversy? Yeah, Hillary. This is, this is um, not from a time period, but I thought of it. I remember I have a friend who grew up in East Germany, and she, her parents always would still go to church, and then they would get in trouble for it. And now, and nobody really would go to church. And then now that, you know, now that Germany is unified and So then she, it really upset her. And so that's sort of like a more modern 
interesting. I feel like I can faster thinking of it from that perspective, from a more modern perspective that I can understand, makes me like understand the anger that they would have mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point to bring up. This doesn't go away. Um, these kinds of situations pop up in church history over and over and over again, and these arguments are hashed out over and over again. And that anger is real that you point to. Um, and, and you know, in a historical situation like this, with um, mass amounts of murder going on, it's um, the emotions were raw and very difficult to to bring a um, spirit of forgiveness to. But that's what Cyprian is, is working for um, in his own way, and trying. And these early Christians are establishing um, the, the sort of the boundaries of these kinds of conflicts and giving the rest of us um, pastoral cues as to to how we can deal with these situations, um, because they they don't end with um, end the end of persecution in Rome. They they come on and these movement movements where people say the the church has fallen. Um, away from the, the apostolic ideal into corruption. And now, to save the church, we have to, to divide it. We have to separate ourselves out from it. Um, beware that that impulse, um, because it tends, to, it tends to always come from the similar place, the, the idea that we can make that kind of final judgment here um, and put ourselves on the right side of it and other people on the wrong side of it. Um, at the time, it was it looked a little bit iffy, um, but the Cyprian side of things went out, and again it was there was trouble again in the fourth century, um, and within North Africa, for a while actually the the Donatist movement, the purity movement, was winning, hands down, you know, 90 percent to ten maybe if if we could put some numbers on it, um, and other churches around the Mediterranean had to. Um, send bishops there and things like that to, to keep the Orthodox, the Catholic Church in North Africa alive. Um, and that's the situation from which Augustine is writing, where um, he is a, a bishop in the minority. Um, and these churches have gotten to the point where they're, actually, they're, they're literally fighting with each other and um, laying ambushes on the roads and destroying one another's buildings and things like that. Um, it, it's, it's, an ugly con it's an ugly controversy that doesn't go away quickly. Um, and has serious consequences in the church. But the, we can be thankful that the side that went out, this side that says, no, forgiveness, God's forgiveness is total, and we can't know what form that's going to take here on earth. We can't make these decisions for ourselves. We have to trust um, that, the, that Christ's body, though, it's, though it has impurities in it, will, will continue on, um, and that God has the power to make it whole even in the face of these horrible calamities. Jake. Are you guys, isn't it also a little bit similar to the workers who worked along the day, or like the older brothers or something? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easy for me to think because mm -hmm. I haven't lost my family to the gospel, but right. you're supposed to want to do that because of you and God, not because of sort of you in the comparison to someone else. Yeah. And as humanly hard as it is to do that, That's what the that's what the people on Cyprian and Augustine side of the argument are going to pull out is that if you if you abandon these people you're um, you're contradicting the words of um, our Savior you, you're contradicting these 
these tough lessons of forgiveness that he gives us in the story of the prodigal son and the story of um, workers coming throughout the day. And you're putting yourself in the place of the older brother, you know, in the prodigal son story. And um, even though you, you passed one test, it may be more dangerous for you than you thought because now you have to deal with the sin of pride um, and in a way that people who are broken and realize their own failings may not have to. Well, um, that's our time, so if you'll allow me, I'd like to close quickly in prayer. Dear Lord, um, I thank you that your grace is manifest in the history of your body, in even such horrific situations as this, Lord, where um, people were, were losing loved ones um, over, over their commitment to the gospel, Lord, and it looked like the entire world was had set its face against um, your church, Lord. But you've brought us through it, and God, you've um, given us resources through these struggles that we can fall back on in times of trouble in, in our own lives, Lord. And um, you remind us that your forgiveness is a commandment, even and really especially, Lord, when we don't want to, when um, we think that that forgiving will somehow weaken your gospel, Lord. Remind us that it is always the backbone and the strength and the essence of the gospel of God. In Jesus' name we pray.